The Old Testament text is the 128th Psalm, and it is printed in the bulletin. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The world is always falling apart. That's been, I think, something that uh, I've concluded based on the fact that I've seen the end of the world maybe four or five times now. Um, there always seems to be something right, that kind of has us worried. And uh, I think uh, there's an uneasy feeling that many people have about the year ahead, what's in store. Now, I do think that uh, this dis-ease is more pronounced than what I've seen in the past when people have un been uncomfortable about the future. Um, and uh, it brings to mind a poem written by William Butler Yeats entitled The Second Coming. Now, this particular poem uh, was written in 1919, which is an interesting date to keep in mind. It's uh, something that he penned right after the First World War uh, and during a, a plague uh, in Ireland. And um, as I read it, you may find that, that uh, the lines are familiar. And the reason that's so is because a lot of folks use it to make a point. But here's, here's the poem, Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert sand, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it wind shadows of indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed into nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Foreboding, isn't it? Just so happens that this was written uh, not long after the Russian Revolution, before the Depression and World War II, but he had it right. 
There were things on the horizon that were horrible. Millions upon millions died after this poem was written. There's something about the times that uh, can uh, speak to us and we can get a sense of this impending sort of cloud that casts a shadow over us. Now, what we have here, though, in this particular poem with regard to the second coming is a, is a mixed metaphor. It's referring uh, with regard to what is coming, not the return of the Lord, but something that is returning that had been eclipsed by the advent of the first advent of the Lord. And that is the sort of dire, hopeless, violent world that Christianity had displaced. That's the second coming. The heartless, pagan brutality of the past returned. Now, I've got better news for you this morning than that, but I wanted to begin with uh, the fact that uh, things can happen that we don't think could happen. There were people in Germany in the 1930s that thought it would never happen what ended up happening. There were people in Russia in the early part of this century who thought well, it would never happen here, and then it happened. There were people in what today we now refer to as communist China who thought in the 1930s and 40s it would never happen here, and then it happened. Things can happen. There can be a dramatic change, and uh, we can find ourselves in kind of a, a nightmare world. And it's at times like that that, you know, we all can kind of feel like we're sons of Issachar, being able to sort of recognize the times that we find ourselves in. Now, the world that we, we live in, though, uh, comes largely prefabricated, and it's held together by uh, divine logic, sort of a divine wisdom, you could say. And that means that uh, the world that we live in has an ability to, you could say, heal itself with the coming of the, the uh, with an, uh, the coming of another generation i could see this even as a child with the collapse of the world that i lived in as a child by the time i was about 7 years old i was pretty much on my own my my father and my mother had deserted me in their own ways and i was a ward of the state i spent time in foster care and in the middle of that insanity i could see uh, things i could recognize sort of the insanity for what it was and realized that it didn't work. And I could see, you know, things that did work and I could understand why they did work. And I realized that in the midst of all that insanity, that God's ordering of the world, fathers and mothers and children and grandparents and so forth, and well-ordered societies where justice is, is recognized and people are encouraged to do the right thing and Parents take responsibility for their children and don't think about abandoning them so they can find themselves in California. I'd lived, by the way, <laughs> at a period of time in the United States during the 1960s and 70s when I was as a child, where it just seemed like everybody was, you know, looking for, for themselves. And it seemed like the only place you could find yourself was in California, far away from your family and your responsibilities. And that's why California filled up with those sorts of people. We talk about anything loose in the United States ends up on the left coast. Sorry, Victor, but it's true. <laughs> now, once upon a time, I, I will concede this, once upon a time, uh, California was sane. And it was after Victor's birth that things kind of took a turn. <laughs> Just a coincidence, though. But anyway, uh, it, 
because I found myself in this uh, world that seemed to be uh, you know, sort of out of control, I uh, looked for points of stability. And, I, and by God's grace, uh, I found myself in places that were good. And uh, I could see the blessings of God that were, you see described here in this passage. Um, but things hold together. And the reason why they hold together is because there is someone holding them together. So on the one hand, things fall apart, but it's the things that we make that fall apart. The things that God makes, those things last. So in spite of the fact that we do the best we can to mess things up, the Lord on an ongoing basis resets. And with that reset, we find ourselves in a better place than we deserve to find ourselves in. Now, the world, as I noted, comes prefabricated. God has made things as they are. He has uh, established an order, a natural order. But there are people out there who have a better idea or think they do. And these are people who are not happy with the established order of things and want to subvert the established order of things and sort of clear the table so that they can create a world that they believe would be a better place. Uh, you know, these are people who are, have utopian notions, who concoct ideologies that they use to sort of impose upon the world. Now, some of you know that I'm working on a book uh, on totalitarianism, and uh, it's one of the most depressing things I've ever had to write, because uh, in the course of working on the book, I've had to read a lot on totalitarianism and, and what uh, characterizes it. And what distinguishes totalitarianism from other forms of authoritarianism is its total project. That's why we refer to it as totalitarianism. Generally speaking, tyrants, historically, were more than happy to leave you alone unless you got involved in the things that they were working on. Then, you know, you had to submit to their authority and do what they said. Totalitarians uh, have a more ambitious project. They believe that there's a kind of perfect world that they could bring into being uh, if they can just get everybody to go along, not just, you know, uh, in, a, in the ways that we normally think of having to go along when there are laws that we have to submit to, but actually by uh, transforming the way we think. They want to get into our heads. So the totalitarian uh, project, the, the project that uh, it, you see at work in any totalitarian regime is total in that sense. And in order for that to be able to, to work, you've got to clear the table. You've got to deconstruct the world and get it sort of open and, and empty so that these plans can be instituted. And uh, this clearing away in our time and you can see just based by, you know, by reading the newspaper or watching television, includes the image of God and man, and even the distinctions between men and women, male and female. And the idea is that in this sort of vision that uh, the more sort of the contemporary totalitarians in our society are, are pursuing, if we can just clear the deck and open people's minds to be influenced by the right influences, then we can bring about a world that is a better place. And the things that stand in the way, most notably, are the church and the family. And so the project uh, that is being pursued 
uh, is pursued uh, by targeting those two institutions. Now, knowing you and you knowing me, this is a problem. This is not something that we can go along with. And uh, the, the objective that they want to bring about is a state that can be referred to as Leviathan. And by the way, the term Leviathan obviously refers to the great monster of the deep in scripture, but it's also referring to Thomas Hobbes and his book of that title uh, that was uh, written in the early modern era in which the state uh, basically clears the stage and runs the show and there's no authority above it that can be appealed to and no authority beneath it that can impede its will. And that's why the family is a problem. That's why the church is a problem. Leviathan, in order to have the power at its disposal to bring about the world that it believes it can bring about or, or institute or create, uh, needs to get rid of the traditional household and the church and its traditional teachings. So that's the, the situation that we find ourselves in here at the end of the year 2023. And by the way, uh, Camden said it correctly, it's the year of our Lord. A.D. always comes before the date. So it's the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. So if somebody says, you know, 2023 A.D., they don't understand how the, the, the sort of the, the, the statement works or the, the title works or the, the reference works. Year of the Lord, 2023, and now we're entering into the year 2024. Now, uh, with this bleak picture that I've just painted for you, I want to talk to you about a bright future, because I do believe in a bright future. I'm actually an upbeat guy. I don't like uh, kind of spending all my time talking about the bad news. It reminds me of a guy that I, I remember from my, uh, my, my wife's old church. His name was uh, Brother Emmett. And I can't remember what his first name was. We just called him Brother Emmett. He was uh, about five foot, I don't know, two, and about as wide as he was tall. But he uh, had a, just a cheerful disposition and always something good to say to you. And that whenever there was a preacher that spent too long talking about the bad news, he would, you, could, you could count on him in the middle of the sermon speaking up and saying, well, we've heard the bad news. Preacher, what's the good news? So I've got some good news I want to share with you after having depressed you the way I have. Now, there are a couple things to note here about the New Testament scripture that uh, uh, Joseph read for you. And that is, the first thing, people are as busy as beavers. We're builders by nature. We build things. Human beings build things. And uh, the Lord says so. We can either build well or poorly, and we have examples of each in that parable. Uh, the Lord says so uh, not simply because He observes us in action, but because He is the one through whom all things came into being. In other words, the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, our Savior, is also our Creator. Have you thought about that? Passages of Scripture make that very clear. Like, if you take a look at uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being through Him. Again, let me take you to Colossians chapter 1, 
what verses are those? Chapter 1, verses uh, 16 and 17. Um, we see there that, again, uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God and that in Him all things hold together, but that's because they came into being through Him and are made for Him. And then we have uh, Hebrews chapter 1 again, verses 1 through 3, where the same thing is stated. So what we have uh, is a Lord who knows us because He's the one who made us. And uh, what He notes is when it comes to the work that we perform in His image, He's a builder, and that's why we're builders. There are basically two approaches. And those two approaches are the ways of the wise man and the foolish man. You remember the story. There was a wise, you, know, you probably even remember that little Sunday school song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. Does this ring a bell? It's one of those great earworms that you just can't stop thinking about after you start. So that's my blessing to you today. That, uh, song is going to run through your mind from this point on. I won't sing it for you because that would be too much. But anyway, so the way of the wise man, and the word wise, or the word uh, that is translated into the English word wise, is uh, not the same word that we see translated in other parts of Scripture into the word wise. So with Greek, there is a foot, uh, kind of a broader range of expression on, when it comes to a number of things, and one of those things is wisdom. So the word that's translated into the English word wise here is not Sophia. I know we think of Sophia when we, if you're familiar with uh, the Greek language, you, you probably assume that that was the word that was translated into the word wise here, but it's not. It's phrenos, phrenos. And phrenos is, has a more practical kind of uh, sort of uh, approach to uh, the world than Sophia does. Sophia, you could, you could describe it at, that as theoretical wisdom, an ability to see things as they truly are. Whereas Phrenos is more practical in character, or practical wisdom, knows what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And so uh, the wise man in the story of the two builders is prudent. He knows what to do. The foolish man is a moron, and it literally is the Greek word moron. Uh, and that's one of those fun things that you see when you're reading Greek and say, oh man, now I know where that word came from. But the foolish man is a moron. And so we have the prudent man and the foolish man contrasted. Now the difference we know is what they build on. That's what determines who is foolish and who is wise, who is prudent and who is foolish. And it comes down to foundations. Now, some of you know that I, I was a builder for a while. I was a general contractor. And some of you know, maybe all of you know, that I was also a real estate uh, investor and agent for a period of time. I helped uh, small holders of real estate liquidate their holdings before the crash in 2008, which, by the way, everybody knew was coming. Everybody except people who watch CNBC. All the people who believed the talking heads and television were the ones who were surprised. But the people who were on the ground, the lawyers, the real estate agents, uh, the bankers, we all knew it was coming. And that's why there was such a frenzy at the time, because we were trying to get it while the getting was good, because we knew everything was going to crash. But anyway, so uh, I say all that just to sort of frame what I'm about to say with regard to foundations. I've, I've, I've put in some foundations. I have some personal experience with foundations. And uh, 
And sometimes those, ex the, that experience, those experiences weren't all that pleasant. If you've ever experienced what life is like when you're covered with form oil, then you've experienced a little bit of hell on earth. But I remember uh, there was a particular house that uh, when I was a realtor, I was invited to tour. And as you walked through the house, you physically, or at least I did, became ill. It was, it was because the house was what the builder had called the leftovers house. And the reason why it made you ill is because when the foundation was poured, it was poured in portions or a little bit at a time. Now, when you pour a foundation with concrete, it soft levels. That's one of the marvelous things about concrete. So you just pour it, you don't have to check, it's soft levels because it is a liquid at that point, and then it solidifies and you can build on it. But there was a, a developer who had this bright idea, you know, there's always some leftover concrete at the end of a pour. And so he built a subdivision and he would take the concrete that's usually the washout at the end that ends up in like a, a pile at the end of some street and instead used it for a foundation which means that it was a little bit at a time. So these chunks of the foundation were laid. And so finally, when it was all done, you had a foundation which wasn't level at all. It just kind of did this. And then the framers didn't adjust for that. And so that meant that the entire house was just sort of out of square. And as you would walk through the house, you weren't entirely sure what was wrong, but it just didn't seem like anything was right. It wasn't so dramatic that you could say that is just so obviously off level that, uh, you know, I feel like I'm tipping over. But you just had this sense of dis-ease, literal dis-ease as you walk through the house. Foundations are important and getting them right is important. And a wise man knows that. And that developer was not wise. And the person who was even more foolish was the person who ended up buying the house and it did sell. But what you need, of course, is a firm basis upon which to lay your foundation. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I'm told that Manhattan makes a great place for skyscrapers is because it's just solid rock all the way down. It just is a kind of like God's plan for skyscrapers was Manhattan. So this uh, is contrasted with sand. So the wise man builds his house upon something solid, but the foolish man builds his house upon something that isn't. Now, why would anybody do that? Have you thought about it? Now, as a builder, I can tell you why. It's because digging foundations is hard work. And sand is not much work at all to move. But when you think about sand, now this is something I'd like to think about with you as we reflect upon the nature of these foundations. Sand is really, you could say, a lot of very tiny rocks, right? very tiny, and you can form them into objects. You can form them into sand sculptures. When we lived on Cape Cod, there were contests. You know, people would come from all around and make these magnificent sand sculptures, and we'd all stand back and impressed looking at giants and fawns and lions and mermaids and dolphins and whatever else you wanted to make out of sand. And then the tide would come in and wash it all away. And all that work would be for naught. And that's what we have with the foolish man. He builds his house upon the sand, and when the storm comes, of course, it's washed away. And the Lord tells us that 
People who hear what he says and do what he says are like the first man, the wise man. On the other hand, those who, and this is interesting, it's not people who don't hear. These are people who hear and don't do. They are like the foolish man described in the story. So the difference is what things are built on. And when it comes down to foundations, the thing that we're told with regard to the rock is that Christ's word, what he says, is rock. And we're told a few verses later that after Jesus finishes this little story about the wise builder and the foolish builder, people are astonished because he spoke as though he had the authority to say what he said. He spoke as one with authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. Now, he spoke with authority because he wasn't quoting, he was speaking. The difference between the scribes and the Pharisees in Christ is the scribes and Pharisees are quoting other scribes and Pharisees, as well as Scripture. But Christ, when he speaks, he's quoting Scripture, and Scripture is about what? Him. He is the very rock itself that uh, we all are looking to, uh, to build our lives upon. So the world came into being through him, spoken into being through him. It's held together by him, and its future is for him. So by him, from him, by him, and for him. Our words, on the other hand, are like that sand. You and I can agree and work together and make that the basis of our, our shared work, but the uh, binding agent that keeps our you know, words uh, in place is such that uh, a little adversity can wash those, uh, those promises that we make to each other and the conditions that we establish for each other away. In other words, our words, even when we intend the best, are not uh, as uh, a sound and stable a basis for building upon as God's word. And when it comes to the things that people are working on today, the world that they're trying to bring into being, uh, using their own wisdom and making statements that they want you and I to adhere to and to believe, these things are like that sand that is described in that story that Jesus told. It's not a sound basis for life or for blessing. Now, what I want to finish with is uh, this thought, and, uh, and it's based on the 128th Psalm. And this thought, and the, question, the, the thought is a question. What are we building here at Westminster Presbyterian Church? What does the future hold for us? What are we attempting to, to, to create in this place? Uh, when we read the story, the wise man built his house upon the, upon the rock, obviously there's a house that's being built. But what does that mean? I think that most people in the contemporary church think that it's referring to, you know, sort of the, the house of your personal life. Uh, it's a, sort of a, almost a, you know, your best life now kind of way of thinking. This is all about you. Of course, in America, because we're individualists, we always think it's all about me. You know, whenever we look at Scripture, we think about, you know, me and, and my particular interests and goals, and that's what it's all about. But I, I think that uh, at, a, at a very real level, I think that 
when we're talking about a house here in that particular parable, we're talking about a real house, a house that you live in with other people, people that you uh, covenant with and uh, serve alongside uh, as you serve the Lord. So the question then is, as, as we're building our houses and our, and our families, uh, what are we modeling our households on? What is the blueprint? What is the plan? Well, I've written uh, on the theme of the cosmos, uh, and if you are interested in me and my writing on that subject, I, a book that has uh, got the name cosmos in it is something you can read, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. But when we think about it, the cosmos today, most people think about what? They think about outer space. And they think about outer space because that's the way the word is used today to refer to sort of you know, that vast, empty region above the Earth's atmosphere that goes on and on and on seemingly forever. But in antiquity, the word cosmos is a Greek word, and it meant order, the sacred order, the order established by God. And that uh, is the model that we are called to follow in Scripture, that model. Our households, then, are microcosms, microcosms of the larger order. And that means that we look to God and His relationship to the church through Christ as our standard for establishing our own households and ordering them. Now, we uh, know that in the process of looking to Scripture and God's Word and looking to the model and the blueprints, that, that there are other uh, influences that are at work that uh, are trying to get us to modify our approach or adjust our approach to, to the way we build our homes. And uh, when it comes to that, we need to keep in mind that uh, those standards are that sand that's being referred to by the Lord in that parable. And this is one of the reasons why we're told in Romans chapter 12 that we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, be conformed to the world, but we, we, sh we should be renewed uh, in the way we think about things. Our minds should be reordered or reformed in accordance with God's plan and His Word. And when things are done the way they should be done, uh, when we're blessed as we follow that pattern, we see our own homes in the way that the psalmist describes this home in the 128th Psalm. Let me read it to you again to remind you. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. In other words, uh, tends to God's word and actually does what God says. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. May the, may, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. When we follow these patterns established by God in the very way He's ordered the world, and we attend to God's Word, then this is the kind of thing that can happen, that can occur. Obviously, because we live in a sinful world and people don't do what they're supposed to do even though they say they are, things don't always work out the way we'd like. But when we know God's blessing, 
when we genuinely follow uh, what the, the things that we're told to do, uh, when we hear God's word in Christ and do the things that we're told to do, this is the way things can work out and often do when we're blessed. Now, when it comes to the larger picture, our church, we are in the work of building God's house. And there are some things to keep in mind. Paul, in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, referred to himself as a master builder. And uh, in that passage, this is uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 17, he refers to Christ being the foundation. And then there are materials that uh, a builder uses to build a house. And he describes sets of materials, some that are combustible and others that are not. The combustible materials are wood, hay, stubble, and so forth. And the non-combustible materials are gold and silver and precious stones. And the reason why this is important is because uh, there is coming a day of fire. And on that day, uh, anything that will be uh, anything that's flammable will be uh, will burst into flame, and anything that is precious will be refined and made pure. And this is what Paul refers to as you know, you know, sort of the framework within which we should be thinking as we build God's house. What we want is uh, uh, something that lasts, not something that uh, is subject to the vicissitudes of time or the, the judgment of God. And because the church is what it is, things are a bit of a mix. They were even a bit of a mix for Paul. I mean, he makes this statement, I don't think just hypothetically, I think he makes the statement, uh, you know, because he's observed the work going on. <laughs> he's observed some things that aren't going to last that are going on in the church and other things that will. And uh, as a church, you are the building. We're told that there's a living stone. The Lord Jesus Christ is that living stone and that you and I are living stones and we're being built up into a spiritual house. And in that spiritual house, the very spirit of God dwells. And so that's really what we're up to here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our, we're builders. We're little busy beavers. <laughs> laboring to do things in, in the way that reflects God's wisdom and building up our own particular households and the household of God as we do so. Now, I want to think a little bit more specifically about our church and the future. I think uh, over this past year, we've enjoyed God's blessings in a variety of ways. New families, baptisms. I believe we've had, I think uh, the count was 27 baptisms this year. A lot of those have been little people. I don't know if we included today's numbers in that figure. I don't know. We didn't. So actually, we're well over 30. I guess we're up what, to like 35 or so. Anyway, a lot, lot of growth, a lot of great things going on. It's a it's marvelous uh, time in the life of our church. And I believe that God is, is, has built up the church so that we can go on building. I had a pastor years ago who was a mentor to me, and he was this marvelous Cape Verdean pastor and lived in... Uh, New Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, which is an old whaling town. And he, he would say, the reward for good work is more work. <laughs> and that's what we are looking forward to, some more work. And I enjoy working. And we're going to be building uh, and building out. One of the things that is marvelous to see in our church is that we have a presence in our, in our 
communities, throughout the businesses that are founded by people in our church. And we're going to see more of that. And we're excited about the prospects for, for those uh, new businesses. And we hope that uh, we'll be able to talk about those things in more specificity in the days ahead. But uh, we're also going to actually be engaged in actually physically building stuff down the road here. We're in the process of thinking about the future for our own worship space. We're in the process of thinking about other buildings for other things. So there's going to be just a lot of building going on. But as we do this building, uh, we want to keep these things in mind that we've already talked about. One is that our households are tremendously important, and it's within those households that children receive the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And consequently, we can't sacrifice our houses in the process of building other things. Furthermore, that church itself needs to be built up and continue to develop and grow. And we're going to give ourselves uh, to, uh, over to that task. And then as we go out further into the community and become more visible to our community, there's something that we need to keep in mind. We will be a target for demolition. And this is something that we've got to mentally prepare ourselves for. Our church has faced adversity in the past, and God has brought us through that, those periods of adversity and, and purified the church and, and blessed it. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, things will be always easy for us. There are likely to be challenges down the road, particularly uh, when people who notice us do a little looking into what we actually believe. You mean you actually believe that men and women are different? You actually believe fathers are the heads of their homes? You actually believe that, you know, uh, a woman is blessed when she has a child and it's not like some sort of unfortunate event in her life that could have been avoided? Those are the people that uh, will not be too pleased with the building that goes on. But, hey, what else is new? <laughs> We have this crazy idea, and, and you know, Cannon brought it up earlier when he, when he made reference to that, that uh, proverb that said, don't think that the old days were any better than the days you're living in. <laughs> They've been bad all along. <laughs> you know, the world has always uh, been going through this crisis of falling apart. But the good news is that the Lord continues to work in our world even when kids are crying. God is at work in our church, in our homes, in this place, and I am looking forward to seeing what God has in store for us and what God is going to do. I hope you are as well. As we enter into the year 2024, I don't know what that year holds. Um, it's, you know, it could be full of good things, not so good things, I don't know. I'm not Nostradamus and neither was he. but. You know, I know that the Lord knows, and I know that the Lord cares for us, and He's at work in our church and is blessing the labor of our hands, and we're seeing marvelous fruit, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to more of that. So anyway, this is what I have uh, to say to you. It's uh, the Lord has brought us this far, and He's going to take us the rest of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we love hearing little kids pray. Uh, cry. It wasn't a, a, I just said that off the top of my head for fun. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'll give us more crying children. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us uh, uh, the kind of blessing that uh, it's hard for us to imagine uh, enjoying. 
not just simply for the sake of our own enjoyment, but for the glory of your name and the building up your, of your kingdom, for the strengthening of our households and for strengthening the household of God. And I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.